A three-day protest has broken out over the death of Hardeep Singh Nijar, a Canadian citizen and Sikh separatist from the northern Indian state of Punjab. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced that there is a reasonable belief there is a link between this murder and the Indian capital, New Delhi, as tensions have been high in India with Sikhs advocating for a separate homeland. This brings us to the questions of how we got here and where we may be heading next. Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Claire DeWicky. Hi, Claire. Hi. And focusing on the international aspect today is Nev Walker. Hey, Nev. Hey. Okay, so before we get too far into the episode, I want to turn to you, Claire, and just ask about some general background information just to catch our listeners up to date. So starting off pretty simple, who was Hardeep Singh Nijar? Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was 45 at the time of his death, was um, born in Jalandhar, India, which is in the northern state of Punjab. In 1997, he moved to Canada and started a family and worked as a plumber there. He became an official Canadian citizen in 2007. Gotcha. And what was his main mission? In Canada, he was a large advocate for the Khalistan movement um, that was happening back in India. This movement had the goal of making a separate homeland for Sikhs, who are the religious minority in India, um, consisting of 2% of the population. This movement had the goal of making a separate homeland for Sikhs in Punjab, who are the religious minority, consisting of 2% of the population of India. Najar, who at the time of his death was organizing an unofficial referendum among the Sikh dysphoria with the organization Sikhs for Justice. And what was his, his history in India like before he came to Canada? In India, Najar was a wanted man. Uh, India accused him of being the mastermind behind the Khalistan Tiger Force, the KFT for short, uh, which was a banned militant group. In 2007, he was accused of involvement in a cinema bombing in Punjab that killed six and injured 40. In 2021, he was accused of an attack on a Hindu priest in Punjab as well. Each of these accusations resulted in Najar being wanted under India's Terrorist Act. Overall, India has a lot of accusations about Najar that are driving this conflict forward and encouraging Canada's defense. Mm -hmm, gotcha. So you can see why he would have chosen to seek asylum in Canada and, mm -hmm. and move himself over there. So taking a step back and looking at Canada on a whole, what is the history of Canadian Sikhs? Like, why are they important? So the first Canadian Sikhs that came to Canada were part of Hong Kong's army regiments who were traveling through Canada in commemoration of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. And since then, Sikh populations began moving to Canada in 1904 of immigrants consisted of around 258 people. In 1947, Sikhs were granted franchise to vote and become Canadian citizens. So they have always had a very prominent role in Canada, at least um, starting in the 19th century. Gotcha. So there's definitely a long history there that would have drawn um, Niger to that part of the world. So what was Canada's role in supporting the Khalistan movement? I know we've mentioned that before. Can you give me some background on, on Canada's influence there? So, as mentioned before, um, it was not until 1947 that they were allowed to vote and become Canadian citizens. Uh, Sikhs were, as mentioned before, it wasn't until 1947 that Sikhs were granted the right to vote and become Canadian citizens. And eventually, Canada kind of realized that they were a very large part of the population and there was a lot of immigrant, um, Sikh immigrants that were coming there. And so, on March 10, 1988, the Canadian Parliament devoted a whole day to debate the issue of Sikhs' rights and the Khalistan movement itself. 
Sikhs have a very recent but prominent role in the history of Canada, and Canada has had the role of supporting Sikh populations and their efforts in the Khalistan movement due to the fact that they are a large chunk of Canada's population. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So there's definitely a long history there that's become very interconnected, which I know many people probably wouldn't immediately assume, considering we're two opposite sides of the world. It's a very interesting aspect to look into. Um, so what are the main groups we're going to be looking at today and their significance? So today, the main countries here at play are India and Canada. And the main leaders are Prime Minister Trudeau and Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Um, and political affiliations and groups are a very important part of this conflict, specifically between Hindus and Sikhs. Uh, This is a very important issue between them that has been there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And about the ethnic groups within the country and their conflicts? So um, Sikh relations and uh, have had a very personal conflict with Hindu populations because of this fight over the Punjab state. And there have been a lot of very bloody battles over their history, even prior to Sikhs moving to Canada. And this conflict has kind of been diffused because of the growing Sikh population in Canada. A lot of Sikhs were moving out of India, so there was less of this conflict, and a lot of the conflict was shut down by India itself. So Sikh populations have had a very personal conflict. The Hindu population and fight for the Punjab state has resulted in a lot of very bloody battles throughout India's history. And this conflict has kind of just been migrated to Canada because of the Sikh population that is moving there. And a lot of the driving factors in this conflict is the idea of a holy land. Many of the Sikhs have temples and other important religious places in northern Punjab, which is what is causing this argument, this fight for so long. Thank you for that history. I think that definitely gives us a good idea of what we're getting into here as we continue to discuss the topic. And I'm going to move to you, Nev, and ask about just the history of the Khalistan movement on a whole. I know we've been mentioning that phrase here, and I just want to make sure everyone's clear as to what that means and what the implications of that are. So just what is the Khalistan movement and its significance to the Sikh community specifically? So the Khalistan movement is a a separatist movement within the Sikh community, especially in the Punjab region and the Indian slash Pakistan area. This movement wants to create an ethno-religious sovereign state called Khalistan. Some people in this movement want um, the Indian state of Punjab in its entirety to become the Khalistan state, while others want some of Pakistan as well. Gotcha. And so when did we first see this emerge and why? So the Khalistan movement started in the 1930s when the British rule of India was coming to an end, yet this conflict became a bigger deal towards the end of the Cold War. And why is that? What was the relation with the Cold War there? Well, after the Cold War, there seemed to be a scramble for land, some might say. The fall of the Soviet Union and and containment in general left a lot of questions about land sovereignty, not only in Eastern Europe, but countries in Asia as well. There seems to be a lot of gray area, and because of the attention the Soviet Union, other conflicts gained momentum as well. Uh, the Khalistan movement really amped up after the Cold War because of the question of national sovereignty. So talking about national sovereignty and just the idea of self-determination on a whole, how does that relate to the Khalistan movement? Yeah, so the Khalistan movement at its core is a separatist movement regarding sovereignty of a state. In the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it is stated that all people have the right to self-determination. So, according to this declaration, it could be considered that the fight for the Khalistan state as an ethno-religious Sikh state could be seen as a fight for the right of self-determination. 
Another aspect that we can look at this issue is the right to religious freedom. From what was mentioned before and what will be mentioned, the Indian government is anti-Calestinian state and has really cracked down on Sikh extremists, which really is resulting in the conflict at hand. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of nuances within the international law surrounding this topic as well. So what are some other international examples that have followed similar ideas that we may know of? Yeah, so there is a lot of international examples that have gone on and that are currently going on that remind me of this specific issue. So this, yeah, so it seems like the future of war, at least modern war, resolves heavily around the conquest of land and national sovereignty. Obviously, we see this with, you know, the Russian-Ukraine war. We see this with Israel-Palestine, the Kashmir area. We see this in even um, right now, the Nagorno-Karabakh area is being, you know, taken over by Azerbaijan. So there is a lot of, you know, wars going on right now that are specific to national sovereignty and even newer conflicts that are revolving around sovereignty are coming up, such as, you know, China and Taiwan. I know some may argue that the real cause of these conflicts is power and the need for countries to flex their power, especially with China and Taiwan. But at the end of the day, these countries and groups are fighting for land that they claim as their own. There seems to be a common theme around wars and tensions right now, and the killing of Najjar and the public reaction to that is indicative of that. Mm -hmm. As you were saying, this definitely seems to be a trend that we're seeing more and more frequently as international relations progresses, as different governments progress as well. But it's definitely interesting to see how that connects internationally through all corners of the globe. It's something we've been seeing. Now I want to turn back to you, Claire, and ask a bit more about the reaction of the Canadian public, seeing that this happened on their soil. And it was a statement from Prime Minister Trudeau that kind of kicked off a lot of the conspiracy around what's been happening with Nijar's death. So what has Prime Minister Trudeau said regarding the situation? Right. So Prime Minister Trudeau initially was the one that called India out for possible involvement in the assassination of Najjar. Um, A week ago, he stood in Parliament um, to say that domestic intelligence agencies were actively pursuing credible allegations tying New Delhi's agents to the shooting of Canadian citizen Hardeep Singh Najjar. Um, Later, after India suspended visa services for Canada, Trudeau said, we are not looking to provoke or cause problems, but we are unequivocal around the importance of the rule of law and unequivocal about the importance of protecting Canadian citizens and standing up for our values. Mm -hmm. And what was his motivation, I guess, for being so vocal about this? So uh, Prime Minister Trudeau does know that a large part of Canada's population is Sikh, and so this was a very big driving factor. Um, But it was also the fact that many of the populations were protesting. They were a lot of church, a lot of populations were protesting and they that was putting pressure on Canada to get more involved in solving this conflict because it was such a large part of the population that was very, very upset about this, you know, act of violence in their community. And it's also just not a good international look for a country to be accused of shooting a man on another country's soil. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So how has the Canadian public responded not only to Nijar's death, but the accusations against India as well? Because I know it, it definitely doesn't come lightly when the leader of a country directly accuses another of possibly killing a citizen. So the Sikh Canadians' um, reaction to Harjit Singh Nijar's death has been a lot of anger. So about 100 protesters in Toronto burned an Indian flag and struck a cardboard cutout of Indian Prime Minister Nadrina 
Modi with a shoe. About 200 other protesters also gathered outside of Vancouver. This anger has been followed by years of frustration with the Indian government. One individual said that on the other side of it, the whole community has this sense of frustration and that they are glad that they're finally being acknowledged that this has been an issue for a very long time that needs to be solved. So I would say that overall, the Canadian public and mostly the Sikh community um, has not let the death of Nijar slide. Uh, he was an upstanding citizen in their eyes, and you know that's up to debate, but he was a very important person in that community. He was important in leading that protest and that fight for that Sikh state. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so why are the opinions of the Canadian Sikhs so important in the grand scheme of things? So the public opinion about the situation is extremely important because a lot of the Sikhs that live in Canada, because it's such a recent move to Canada, a lot of them have family members and uh, friends that are back in India that are still struggling with some of the violence and other conflicts, not having their own state and the Khalistan movement itself still has a couple of small ties in India. And so these opinions of the Canadian Sikhs are really important because that is where the root of the Khalistan movement has moved to. That's where it's more prominent. So these opinions can cause a lot of other issues. So they are very, very important. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Has there been opposition to the Canadian Sikhs that they have faced there? In Canada, local communities have been very supportive of Canada's de defense of the Sikhs. Many of them feel that they're being heard and supported in their fight for the state of Punjab. And there was even a quote that said that the community feels a bit relieved now that at least there is someone who has shown leadership to bring this message forward. So there has been a lot of support in Canada. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, I want to turn back to you, Nev, and ask a couple questions. One being, what have been some major points of contention between India and Canada leading up to this accusation? Yeah, so there has been some tension and heightened awareness revolving around Sikh extremism between India and Canada. India's capital, New Delhi, accused Canada's capital, Ottawa, of failing to prevent Sikh extremism for years now. Uh, they consider Najjar as a Sikh extremist and a terrorist, considering his leadership role in the Khalistan movement and other actions he has been accused of doing. And India is saying that Canada has been complicit in this behavior for years. So going back to the issue of national sovereignty, Canada's Prime Minister Trudeau did make a comment in the House of Commons stressing that any killings occurring on Canadian soil by the work of a foreign government is considered a violation of the country's sovereignty, India being a foreign government. If it is true that the Indian government was involved in killing Najjar, it would be a violation of the United Nations Charter stating that all members shall refrain in the international relations from the threat or use of force using the territorial integrity or political independence of any state. This issue may seem pretty trivial, but multiple treaties and charters have been broken because these claims are true. And also considering both Canada and India are both parties to the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, this means that the killing of Najjar is not only a violation of international law, but a violation of international human rights law, which makes this a bigger issue than was just on the surface. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And so how, do, how has Prime Minister Trudeau gotten the information to assert that the Indian government was involved in Najjar's death? Okay, so there's an international organization called Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. This alliance is formed um, between the United States, Canada, New Zealand, UK, and Australia. 
This alliance was formed after World War II and just involved the UK and the US, but has since ex expanded to Canada, Australia, and New Zealand in the years since. Um, this alliance is regarding the sharing of information and the information specific to this case. The information shared indicated that India's government has something to do with the death of Najjar and they base these claims on surveillance of Indian diplomats in Canada. Gotcha. And so how does this compare to other instances of international tension over the death of a leader of a prominent movement? Yeah, so this isn't the first time a leader of a group was killed regarding their actions or beliefs. We could use historic examples such as the assassination of Lincoln or JFK, um, but if it is true that the Indian government did order the killing of Najjar, it is more reminiscent of other killings, such as when the Trump administration organized a drone strike of Qasem Soleimani in 2020 or the assassination of Osama bin Laden in 2011. Mm -hmm. So it isn't the first time we've been faced with these sorts of complications surrounding the death of a, of a prominent figure. Definitely not, especially when it does involve terrorism or um, self-called mm -hmm. terrorism. Absolutely. And turning back to you, Claire, I wanted to wrap up on some final points about the foreign policy implications and economic implications that this accusation may have on the countries. So what, fo what foreign policy shifts between the two countries have come out of the increasing tensions so far? So there have been several that have been very prominent um, as a result of these tensions between a India and Canada. Many news reports have stated that there has been a quote-unquote tit-for-tat reaction from both countries. So one of these examples is Canada pausing trade missions with India. So they paused these trade missions with the exp explanation saying that political developments in Canada were causing them. And then most recently, during last weekend's G20 summit in New Delhi, Indian Prime Minister Nadrina Modi chose not to hold a formal bilateral meeting with Canadian leader Justin Trudeau. So that's also upholding those trade missions that they have been paused for the time being. So the expulsion of diplomats have also been a another result of this tension. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie said that she ordered the expulsion of a senior Indian diplomat in Canada. And then about hours later, India said that they had expelled a Canadian diplomat with a five days notice to leave the country. So there has been that tit for tat reaction with the expulsion of diplomats as well. And then finally, Canada has been restricting visas, and in response, India has also restricted visas. They both stated that there were operational reasons, and they, India even warned citizens traveling to the country to take extreme caution due to growing anti-India activities and politically condoned hate crimes in Canada. There's been a lot of results of this tension that we aren't really sure when it will come back when things will resolve. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so are economic relations suffering because of these implications of the situation? Yes. Um, so there has been a very substantial economic impact on the tensions between Canada and India. They have both been developing their trade over the last few years and rely heavily on each other. Um, for example, uh, India was also was Canada's ninth largest trading partner in 2022. Um, and they touched about $8.16 billion just in 2022 alone. India also needs Canada. Canada is India's 17th largest foreign investor, putting more than $3.6 billion in 2000 into India. So they both really need each other. And if this tension continues, there could be a lot more economic impacts. Speaking of these economic impacts, could you give us some details about some of them? The macroeconomic implications here can be detrimental because the economic relationship between Canada and India 
could boost by 6.5 billion if they keep trading. But with this slowing trade, this amount could decrease by a lot. And this can affect companies, this can affect the shortage of resources, this could affect a lot of other industries that are very, very important for the rest of the world if this pause lasts long enough. As for microeconomic impacts, many analysts are saying that these worsening ties could affect some economic interests of Sikh families in, in India's Sikh majority state of Punjab in the north, um, since many have relatives in Canada who send money to their friends and family back home in India. So without that money through trading, that could cause a lot of issues for a lot of individuals as well. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the populations of both countries are going to be severely impacted by these yes. policy shifts. So could we see these economic and policy shifts become permanent or will things go back to normal given some time? Like, What's the outlook for that? So it is likely that many of these policy changes are temporary, especially until the investigation into the death of Najjar is over. Both Canada and India just rely on each other too much um, economically for these changes to stay in place. Though both countries would really suffer if they kept them in place. As mentioned before, it's just too detrimental. Though personally, I think that once the investigation is over, a lot of the solutions will kind of resolve themselves. A lot of these problems will resolve themselves and solutions will come out of it. And uh, many other reporters also believe the same. Mm -hmm. So this isn't going to be something that's going to totally shift their relations over a long period of time. It's something that they can essentially get over in in enough time. Mm, Yes. Okay. So thank you both so much for coming on. This has been a really, really great discussion. I want to just wrap up with a couple of final thoughts um, from both of you about the topic in general. So turning to you, Claire, I wanted to ask, how might this issue be resolved and could we expect another one to arise in the future? I think this issue has been one that's going on for a very long time and will continue to be an issue until Sikhs get their own state. In this incident, Canada's involvement, it is best for both sides to cooperate with the investigation until it's resolved and other enforcement and Indian law officials believe the same. They think that cooperating fully in the murder investigation will be the best solution here. If this investigation has willing participants on both sides, then visas will eventually be unrestricted and trade will go back to normal. And there will still be some tensions between the countries, but hopefully these tensions will lower. Um, In this situation, Canada just kind of became in the middle of it because of that Sikh population moving to Canada. But this Kalistan movement has been going on for a very, very long time. And though it's gotten, it's been slower, it will definitely still stay prevalent um, until Sikhs have their own state. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And turning to you, Nev, do you think that this incident will majorly shift any relations within the given region surrounding India, or will it remain an internal conflict? Well, we've already seen tensions shift between India and Canada, specifically with trade and just their relationship relationship in total. So Canada and India are postponing their trade negotiations, which were originally scheduled for October. And there's also just been a big shift in their relationship. And there has been accusations thrown on both sides regarding the treatment of the Sikh population and and extremism, and that has caused tension in their relationship. That being said, I do not think the rise in tensions will continue for long. Like Claire said, Canada and India are heavily reliant on each other for trade, and that goes with India and other countries, especially westernized countries. So given India's importance in relation to the growing influence on um, not only China, but just trade in general and other big westernized countries in general, I believe that this issue will run its course. I know that does sound very terrible to say, 
That being said, sometimes economics does trump over moral conflict. So I think other countries, they may make a statement saying, we support the Sikh population or we are against Sikh extremism, but they're not going to do anything about it just because of the trade agreements already set in place. I think other countries will and should be hesitant to get involved in this conflict in any sense in order not to step on any toes, whether that is India's or Canada's. India has always been more sensitive about sovereignty ever since UK control and so their act in potential, their supposed act in killing Najjar can be seen as an attack on Canada's sovereignty and power within its own country. That being said, I do not think this issue will persist for much longer, especially given other conflicts going on right now. You know, the Russian-Ukraine war, Israel-Palestine, Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is rapidly um, increasing tensions just this past week or two. So I think not that we have other issues that are more pressing, but I do think this issue will be put on the back burner, at least for now. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as I'd love to keep diving into this topic with y'all, unfortunately, that is all the time we have. So I just wanted to thank you both again, Claire and Nev, for joining us and helping us just dive into this really important topic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Jacqueline Perez. Hi, Jacqueline. Hey, Trish. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming on. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Okay, so first, anger grows over Ukraine's largest Orthodox church aligned with Moscow despite war. So recently, anger arose after Ukrainian worshippers, who belong to a branch of the Orthodox Church tied to Moscow, sang and prayed outside a monastery in Kiev. The anger was due to the Moscow Patriarch and the head of the Russian Orthodox Church's embrace of war. This has led to many Ukrainians confronting Orthodox worshippers and insulting them, claiming that they have not distanced themselves from Russia due to the ongoing conflict between both nations. Definitely an interesting aspect of the conflict to consider. Um, tell us more about the next headline. All right. So more than 2,500 migrants crossing the Mediterranean died or went missing this year. As said, the United Nations reported that over 2,500 migrants have died or have gone missing this year attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea to Europe. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees Office told the UN Security Council that between January and September 24, about 186,000 people arrived in Southern Europe by sea, with Italy receiving most of those arrivals. The UN's urgency for this issue came the day the European Union met in Brussels about migration reforms and attempted to come up with an agreement. An urgent matter indeed will be keeping in our thoughts. And our next story? Yes, so Indian authorities rushed to contain a deadly Nepal virus outbreak in Kerala. So after the deaths of two people in, from the rare Nepal virus in Kerala, its chief minister urged the public to be cautious and follow health guidelines. This is the fourth outbreak, with the last one being in 2018, killing 17 people. There is no vaccine and there is limited treatment. The Nepal virus is contracted from animals, but can also be digested through contaminated meat. For further measures, authorities have begun testing and shutting down institutions such as schools. I'm sure we'll all be following that very closely as it develops. And our last story? Yes, so Gaza-Israel tensions spiral amid closures and clashes. So after 12 days of closure, Palestinian workers heard Israel is to open its side of the Erez crossing. This is due to the violent protests. Many who are authorized to work are are not able to due to closures. It is reported that 
18,000 Gazans have authorizations and are waiting at the crossing point belonging to the Islamic militant group Hamas. Thank you so much for sharing these stories with us, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Bobby Kyle, associate producers Kasha Kastrava and Juliana Mori, technical producer Ashley Skladani, and of course, your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.